please open your Bible to John chapter 11. And as you do, uh, I want to just read a little paragraph of this chapter to you. I'm going to try to teach you the message of John 11 tonight, uh, but I want to just read to you one paragraph of it so that you can understand the message. It's a familiar story. You, You know about it. It's a story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I wonder if you ever think about your heartbeat. Most of you are young and and healthy, and you probably don't think very often about your heartbeat, but I bet you've noticed it this week as you have climbed the hills to get to your dorm room, as you have played games at a higher rate of speed than perhaps you normally move from class to class. I wonder if you think very much about your heart. Uh, Depending on your heart rate, uh, which really is a measure of your physical health. I know this is a fitness in, in uh, fitness guru, really. My heart rate, resting heart rate, is, is relatively high. You'd be impressed. Or is that a bad thing? I don't know. Uh, but if your heart was beating harder, you notice it. You feel it in your neck. Your, your pulse uh, becomes something you're aware of, and you can feel it uh, in your wrist. You feel blood pumping through your body. And you can imagine what it would feel like for your heart to suddenly arrest, for it to stop beating, and for your blood to stop moving through your body. And when your heart stops beating, and someday your heart will stop beating, you will begin the process of death. Some people's heart stops beating. But because of a wonderful technique that isn't that old, uh, something that you're aware of called CPR, many lives have been saved and many people have been resuscitated. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR. There's lots of trips, tricks, and techniques to do it right. If you've ever been Red Cross certified, they teach you how many fingers to put between the sternum and where you're supposed to apply pressure, uh, how many breaths you're supposed to breathe in, and what amount of time. And then recently, it's received more publicity that one of the best ways to do CPR is to make sure you have approximately 100 chest compressions per minute. Approximately 100, between 100 and 120. And doctors trying to help people save lives who's, who have learned CPR have told people that they should hum a familiar song, a familiar song to almost everyone written by an American disco group called the Bee Gees. The song is Stayin' Alive. Have you heard that? <laughs> it's true. Wikipedia. Stayin' Alive is a song that is 103 beats per minute. And so the idea is, in that moment of crisis, as you're trying to resuscitate someone and get their heart to start beating again, in between these breath intervals, you're supposed to do 103 or so chest compressions per minute, and you do so to the beat of staying alive. 
I've read that article. It, it comes out pretty regularly. A news carrier will, will put it out on, on an internet website. And I cannot stop laughing. <laughs> and it's a very scary moment, the heart attack. But it's a little less scary when somebody's going, hmm, 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 staying alive, staying alive. I mean, it's funny both in genre and in lyrical content. like really funny. <laughs> but a heart attack's not funny. That day, your heart stops beating. And Lazarus experienced that. Lazarus was a person who lived to tell about it. And unlike all the fakers that uh, make books and try to sell books and screenplays about their near-death experiences where they see a light and contradict every single passage in Scripture... Uh, Lazarus never wrote a book. Instead, he was revived. He was resuscitated. He was brought back, not from near death, but from total death. And this was done by the power of Jesus. John 11 is one of many signs that Jesus performed, miracles that Jesus performed to demonstrate that he was God, a very God. And John 11 is in the book of John as a series of examples and evidences that Jesus is God and that he is the only way for you to be saved. John wrote this little book to teach others that they should trust Jesus with their lives, that they should entrust their souls to him, that he has the power over uh, all natural forces, he has the power over all spiritual and demonic forces, and that he has, in John 11, the power of life itself. And so I want you tonight to think about your own death. I want you to think about that moment when you will lie on your deathbed. When you will be in that time when life ebbs from your veins. And this physical life draws to a close. And I want you to think about the surprising story of Jesus and Lazarus. There's four surprises I count in this remarkable story. John is a literary genius. He writes a book that is one of the finest masterpieces ever written in any literature, and by even secular accounts, the descriptions that John gives and the drama that John gives as he puts this story together are really remarkable. But there's four surprises I want you to see to understand this simple truth. Jesus has power over life and death. And nothing else matters. When you have that central thought in the contemplation of your own death, your own mortality, your own life being 80 years maybe if you don't eat cheeseburgers, uh, then... It's a sobering reality. It brings you back to this central truth that Jesus has the power over life and death. And that's the story of Lazarus. So we're not going to cover every single word of this, but I do want you to get these four big surprises. And it all starts at the first verse of chapter 11. The first surprise in this story is Jesus' surprising delay. When this was first written, the number 11 wasn't there. John was writing an entire book. He didn't separate it into chapters. That happened later. So if you were to read the flow of the Gospel of John, you would hear about the incarnate word. You would hear about the one who was from the beginning, who spoke this universe into existence. You would hear about his birth, and you would hear about his ministry. You would hear that Jesus was the promised one, and that he came into this world and called disciples and taught amazing things and claimed to be God and demonstrated his power over sin and sickness, and now he's in a place called Bethnea, a place called Bethnea. Look at verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany. That's different than Bethnea. Bethnea was where Jesus was, and Lazarus is in a place called Bethany, a little village outside of Jerusalem. 
And the story goes on to say that this was a family that was familiar to Jesus, a family that knew Jesus quite well, apparently. Lazarus was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And this is the same Mary, verse 2 says, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, and the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. The story introduces us to a family, a family of some means, a rich family, a family that lived outside of Jerusalem, probably involved in agricultural farming, maybe urban chicken farmers or suburban chicken farmers, I don't know, but they were people of means. They lived outside the city, they hosted many events where Jesus was present, so they had to have space for that kind of a thing. The other reason we know that they were people of means is because uh, they are mentioned, Mary is the one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Scholars have looked at that and said the value, the value of that perfume that Mary poured on Jesus' feet in modern dollars was $25,000. A year's wages for a servant in those days. Mary sacrificed that in an extravagant act of worship, a wasteful act that was received by Jesus because Jesus was worthy of that great sacrifice. We see Jesus' real human relationships here. It's highlighted as she says in a message to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when Jesus hears this, Jesus says in verse 4, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, verse 6, he stayed where he was two more days. Something's repeated here. Something's very noticeable here. Before we get to Jesus' surprising delay, would you please note that Jesus is identified as the one who loves others. She sends a message to say, Jesus, the one you love is sick. The message isn't the one who loves you is sick. The message is the one you love is sick. And then in John's commentary on this story, he identifies Jesus' relationship with Lazarus' sisters in similar language. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John says that so you wouldn't be confused about Jesus' disposition towards this family. Why would he delay his coming to help his friend? Why would he hesitate for a minute if his friend who he loved and these sisters who loved their brother, who Jesus loved these sisters, why would he wait? Why would he delay? So John, telling this story, reinforces the fact that these people were loved by Jesus. Yes, they loved Jesus, but the more you read the Gospels, the more you read the stories about Jesus and how he lived and the words he spoke and what he did, you see that those who are closest to Jesus, one of the most common features of those who become intimate with Jesus, one author said, is not that they think of themselves as great lovers of Jesus, but they think of themselves as dearly loved by Jesus. The closer you were to Jesus, the more you are aware of his love for you. It's why John calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. Jesus had real human relationships, and those who knew Jesus were struck by how much he loved them. This is a reminder to all of us that Jesus was a human being with real human relationships, born in an out-of-the-way place called Nazareth, uh, that he grew up with actual people and had human relationships. I think sometimes it's a great weakness in our the theology of Christ, our Christology, that we don't think of him as fully human. We think of him as perfect Jesus floating around like hovering with some kind of mysterious glow like those sticks you break from Target. Jesus was a real person with real human relationships. People knew him, and when they knew him, they said, it's remarkable, the thing about Jesus is how much he loves me. 
That's why Paul the Apostle prayed later in the Bible that the Ephesians would know the love Christ has for them. Those who were intimate with Jesus knew that it wasn't that they loved him particularly well, but that he loved them particularly well. Are you getting to know that? You've heard the gospel over and over this week, and you'll continue to hear it every week in your churches. I hope it's a reminder to you that the gospel is not the level that you love God. It will always be imperfect until you are glorified. But the gospel at the heart of it has to do with the love of God in Christ towards you. Friend, you're not perfect. Your love is not perfect. But as we heard yesterday, God's loyal love is perfect. And it's directed at sinful, imperfect people. Which is why this delay is so surprising. It's so surprising that he's only 110 miles away. Only 110 miles away. It's three days journey uh, approximately if you're moving quickly. And Jesus decides to stay, verse 6, two more days with some cryptic statement that it's for God's glory. And the sickness will not end in death. And then he tells his disciples, let's go back to Judea. When verse 8, his disciples argue with him, which is a mark of fool-headed disciples when they argue with God. But they say a short while ago, Jesus, in case you forgot, uh, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there. And Jesus answers them in another kind of parabolic statement. Are there not 12 hours of daylight, verse 9? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by the world's light. It's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. In other words, don't tell Jesus what to do. Jesus sees like it's day, even when it's night. He knows what he's doing here. This delay is surprising because of Jesus' great, well-known affection and love for his friends. And the disciples are afraid because they know that when they were in the north, in Judea, the heat was on. They were in trouble there. There was a plot afoot to kill Jesus. Jesus was becoming increasingly unpopular with the leadership in Israel. His popularity was making the other leaders nervous. They were nervous about this this control of Rome, this superpower of the ancient world who had control of them. And they thought... Any waves, any disturbance, any uh, mass crowd surrounding Jesus will cause problems for us. We might need to get rid of this guy. Plus, he's not really reinforcing our religious traditions. He's walking all over them. And so after the disciples argued with Jesus, he said, Our friend Lazarus, verse 11, has fallen asleep, and I'm going there to wake him up. Remember, Jesus was a man, a man inhibited by a 110-mile journey. Jesus didn't get to Bethany by going, Bethany. He had to walk there on his feet. But Jesus was God. And the moment Lazarus died, Jesus knew it. Jesus wasn't a Jedi. He didn't feel a disturbance in the force or some dumb thing like that. Jesus was, big word, omniscient. He knew all things. And in the perfect omniscience of Jesus, he knows his friend has died. And he uses a euphemistic way of saying he fell asleep. And the disciples, in one of their many kind of moments, they say, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. They're thinking like the fever broke. Good. These are like a bunch of doctors here. Good job, fellas. But Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep, so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. You see, this story keeps driving towards a decision. This story, I already read you the verse that says you must believe. This whole letter, this whole epistle, this whole gospel was written to show you that you must believe, and, and Jesus, in his ministry to these 12 men, is constantly a affirming their need to trust, their need to believe. And the same thing happens today every time the message is preached. What do you need to do? Not reform your life 
What do you need to do? Not clean up bad habits. What do you need to do? You need to trust Jesus. You need to take him at his word. You need to embrace the Savior. You need to lean wholly upon him. You need to do what the disciples needed to do. You need to do what's required of you, which is not try to earn your way into heaven, not try to fake your way there by being a religious hypocrite. You need to trust Jesus. That's it. You have to trust him, and that trust will flow to obedience and will flow to faithfulness and will flow to love for Jesus, but you must start by taking him at his word. And the disciples don't understand his surprising delay. But Thomas says he's willing to go die, verses 14 and 15. Let's go. They'll kill us. Let's do this. We'll die with Jesus. And now he arrives. Several days later, Jesus has now walked this great distance with his disciples into a hostile territory where Jesus is not a popular person. And he finds that Lazarus has been not only dead, but buried in a tomb, an above ground tomb, for four days. Bethany was two miles outside of Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary, verse 19, to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. And then you see this interaction again that we read. Lord, Martha accuses Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you hear the stinging rebuke in those words? This chapter is full of people who think they need to correct Jesus' theology, Jesus' practice. They need to tell Jesus how he has disappointed them. And when you talk like that, you don't talk in faith. When you talk like that, you're not talking language of trust, language of submission, language of loving Jesus. And she says, my brother wouldn't have died. And she's not wrong. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Is there a glimmer of faith there? Perhaps. But here's where we get to the second surprise in this passage. The first is the, the Savior's surprising delay. The second is the Savior's surprising sermon. And don't worry, it's not a sermon within a sermon. It's only two sentences long. Jesus' surprising sermon that he gives to this grieving woman, Mary, here's how he answers her. Martha, here's how he answers her. He says, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds immediately, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha thinks Jesus has taken her back to the eschatology class they did at her house a few months back. She thinks this is like something out of a Wayne Grudem systematic textbook. She's like, yeah, Jesus, I know you taught us about the resurrection. I know he'll rise in the last day. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says, yeah, I get it. I get it. You know, end time stuff. And, you know, there's horses and bulls of wrath and all that. Yeah, you remember. I I remember that. That's not really helping me right now, Jesus. But again, she lacks the trust and the faith. And so Jesus keeps his sermon going. And this is what he says. I am the resurrection, and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, she has good eschatology. Yes, she knows that there will be a resurrection in the end. Jesus taught her what she knows. She gets that. But what she doesn't understand ultimately is not just that Jesus is so wise, that Jesus is so good, that Jesus is so loving, that Jesus is so connected to God. What she really doesn't fully understand is this truth that Jesus reveals in this surprising sermon when he says, I am the resurrection and I am the light. For Jesus to be the resurrection and for Jesus to be the life is for Jesus to self-identify as resurrection and life. What does that mean? Because it's tremendously profound. What does it mean that Jesus is the resurrection and Jesus is the life? I'll give you an example I read on the internets. George Zimmer is a guy you're familiar with, I think. He's been on commercials your whole life for a company called The Men's Warehouse. 
You know the commercials? Yeah. He, he rides usually in the car with his shades on, and he's dressed to the nines. He's got a, a tie on and a suit on, and he's got a beard on, and his beard is like kind of salt and pepper, and he's got a real gravelly voice. And he sells you suits, and he rents you a tux at prom. George Zimmer, that's the guy's name. And he's not just an actor on a commercial. He's actually the CEO of the men's warehouse. I bet Henry Carey knew that. It's true. The CEO of the men's warehouse. And he has this famous line. Do you remember it? It starts with this. You're going to like the way you look. Come on. You watch too much TV. That's what it is. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. In every commercial, he says that. Well, I didn't know that this was actually the guy until I read this article. It was CNN Money. And the article said that there was a dispute between George Zimmer, the CEO of the men's warehouse, and the board of directors. You see, George Zimmer started the men's warehouse with one store selling suits out of the back of his car or something. And then it expanded to 1,200 stores nationally. And now he's in control of this company along with these board of directors, and they have a disagreement on the direction of the store and some planned initiatives. And the board of directors says, George, we're doing it our way. And George says, no, we're not. And they say, George, you're out. You're fired. And he was removed as the CEO of the men's warehouse. Shocking, I know. That's all the article said. I don't know what it said after that, but I imagine how it went down. I picture a big corporate boardroom and George Zimmer in his suit, salt and pepper beard, gravelly voice, sunglasses on. And the board of directors saying, George, you're out. And I see him at the table, look around and say, I'm out. You're firing me? I started this company. I am the men's warehouse. And then I picture him pushing away from the table and storming out saying, you're not going to like the way this looks. I guarantee it. (laughs) When he said in the story, I am the men's warehouse, you know he didn't mean he is one of 1,200 locations. (laughs) You know he didn't mean there was lots of silk ties there. You know he didn't mean you should come to him personally and rent a tux. He's not a store made of bricks and mortar and sliding doors and kind of cheesy salesman. No offense, anyone that works at the men's warehouse. He's saying that this is my company. I invented the men's warehouse. I'm in all the commercials. My voice, remember the saying? He's saying, I am the men's warehouse. Well, what does that mean? Well, that is a tiny version of what Jesus is saying here. The CEO is saying, I own this store. I invented this store. I define this store. Well, Jesus times 10,000 is saying that about resurrection and life. If you are to conquer death, to be made alive again, and if you are to live, not just now, but live forever, then the only way you will experience that is through the Son of Man. The only way that you will know resurrection and the only way that you will know life is to know the one who said that he is the resurrection and he is the life. It is his. Resurrection is his. Life is his. He invented it. He spoke life into existence and he sustains every single heartbeat in this room until the day you die. And then when your soul stands before God in judgment, he sustains that too. Jesus owns resurrection. Jesus owns life. Jesus defines resurrection. Jesus defines life. There is no life without Jesus. There is no resurrection without Jesus. He is the resurrection and he is life. It doesn't mean that in some weird, ontological way, Jesus is life, man. Jesus is God, man. 
And Jesus is a man, man. But Jesus is so closely identified with life that there is no true life apart from him. And if you live away from Jesus, apart from Jesus, in rebellion and opposition to Jesus, then you have never really lived at all. Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He speaks and life exists. He speaks and one is resurrected. And if you belong to Jesus, he not only gives those things, he is those things. He controls all of life and he has the power over all of life. He is so connected and so identified and so involved with resurrection and life that death itself has nothing on Jesus. And that's what we find in the surprising sermon. That Jesus says, if you believe these things, you will never die. And he's not content with just stating it. He asks her personally, do you believe this? Listen to me. Some of you still have not submitted your life to Christ. Some of you still think your way is the better way. Some of you have been raised with so much exposure to Christianity that it's just white noise to you. You've been offered the gospel so many countless times and you sit in your small group and you freely say, well, I'm not a Christian. With this ugly indifference. And it's so offensive to God. It's offensive to God because he gave his own son. It's offensive to God because he by nature is a savior. And Jesus himself looks this woman, his dear friend who he loved in the face, in her hour of deepest grief, and says to her, do you believe this? And Jesus looks to you right now through his word and through his spirit, and he asks you that same all-important question. I'm asking every single one of you, do you believe this? Do you believe that there is life only in Jesus? Do you believe that there is resurrection only in Jesus? Do you believe it? I hope and I pray you do. And I hope that cold, dead heart of yours would wake up under the conviction of your sin and see that you are rejecting God. God has not rejected you. He gave you his own son. This moment is an opportunity for you to repent and believe that Jesus is the resurrection, that Jesus is your life, and to surrender your life to him. That's the surprising sermon, and everything else depends on that. There's a third surprise here, and it's the surprising emotion of Jesus. The surprising emotion of Jesus. She responds affirmatively in verse 27. Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Christ. That's the promised one, the Messiah, the Son of God, the long-expected hope of the Jews who was to come into the world. And then the story moves on. After she had said this, he has a similar encounter with Mary. Now Mary's there. She accuses Jesus uh, similarly. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, it's an interesting scene if you look at verse 31. It's not like anything we've ever experienced, probably. It says, when the Jews had been with Mary in the house, Comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. That's the second time these Jews who came from Jerusalem to mourn are mentioned. And they'll be mentioned again in this next paragraph. Look at verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she accuses him similarly. And when Jesus, verse 33, sees her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Picture this scene. Funeral customs, you know, are different in, throughout history and in different nations. When we're exposed to death, it's a relatively sanitized experience. We have mortuaries and we have ambulances and hospitals and mortuaries and you have a lot of different services and there's very little interaction with the dead body in our society in modern day. 
Not all societies were like that. Some societies still practice awake where the body is left in the house for several days and then buried later after others have come and visited. In other societies, uh, grief is a more public matter. In ours, it seems to be usually more private. The public part is an hour long at a funeral service. In the ancient world, in Jesus' time, funerals were a massive public spectacle. The Mishnah, a Jewish religious instructive book that told the Jews some specifics in how they ought to live, rabbinical instruction, said that no matter how poor a family was, they were required to hire one professional flute player when a death occurred and two professional mourners. A custom still practiced in the East in some places. Professional mourners. Sounds weird to us, but it's because it's not 2,000 years ago and you're not an Israelite. Two mourners and one flute player to play a sad song in a minor key to accompany the family as they'd walk and carry the body to the burial site, to the tomb, to mourn with them as others came to visit. And these women would dress all in black and they would cry out with loud, mournful tears. It was their job as mourners to keep the tone somber, to keep the grief visible so the entire community would know and remember someone has died here. A family like this one, Dropping $25,000 on perfume would have had many, many, many flute players and lots and lots and lots of professional mourners. So picture the scene. Mary gets up to leave the house to find Jesus. All these professional mourners come with her. A throng of people wailing and crying. The grief is audible. It's, it's palpable. You can feel it. It's everywhere. All this tearing and crying and mourning and yelling. It's loud. It's noisy. It's just a cacophony of grief. And the sisters are crying. And the sisters are somewhat angry at Jesus. And Jesus sees Mary weeping. And Jesus sees the Jews weeping. And it says that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled and asks the question, where's the tomb? And she says, come and see, Master. And in that shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, See how he loved him again. A reminder of Jesus' continual love for others. But others of these crowd of mourners said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. Jesus wept. Jesus was deeply moved. This is a surprising emotion. And you say, no, it's not. He's at a funeral. What's he supposed to do? Tell jokes? He's crying, obviously. You just said he's a human being. But I want to show you something that will help you understand this scene a little better. This word that occurs twice in this passage in the original language, deeply moved, is not a word about sadness. And I don't think Jesus' tears are predominantly the same kind of tears that the crowd of mourners and the sisters are crying. Let me ask you a question. If you were Jesus and you knew what you were about to do to miraculously and amazingly raise your friend from the grave, how much crying would you do out of sadness? Perhaps some empathy for these grieving people, but why not resurrect Lazarus and end the grief? It's about to happen that way. You see, that word deeply moved in Greek does not mean sad. It's a word that's usually translated outraged. Write it down. Outraged. A bigger word, indignant. You see, Jesus is upset. But it's not the upset of a mourning man. Jesus is deeply outraged. Jesus is deeply moved. Jesus is upset. Jesus is troubled. Jesus is indignant. Why? 
Why does Jesus feel this rage? Why does Jesus feel this anger in this funeral scene? He knows what's about to happen. Why does Jesus feel this way? Is it because of all the accusations against him? I don't think so. Jesus was used to being mistreated and maligned and scolded and corrected by humans. What makes Jesus so upset here? I'll tell you what I think it was. Jesus once more, deeply moved, verse 38, came to the tomb. Jesus is about to be confronted with mankind's greatest enemy. He's about to see face to face that horrible enemy of every human being, the result of a sin-stricken world, Jesus is about to go toe-to-toe and face-to-face with death, that great enemy of mankind. The result of a world in rebellion to God. Jesus looks at death itself and his feeling in his soul is deep outrage. Death is the mark of sin in this world. Its immeasurable magnitude has touched every one of our lives. People close to us have died, and we do not see them anymore. And Jesus knows, as the creator of this world and of every single one of these people, that this was not the original intention of creation. This was absent in the Garden of Eden. Death is an enemy. Death is is alien. Death is foreign. Death is awful. Death is not a part of heaven. When he encountered death, it is a reminder to a holy God that this world is not as it was. This is a sinful world. And Eden has been undone. And Jesus looks at death itself. And he's outraged. He's outraged because he knows that this death will only happen again. Lazarus will still die. And Jesus knows that he's about to die that he will experience death, that he has to go through this awful gaping mouth of horrible death because of mankind's sin, and he has to take that punishment on himself, and Jesus is deeply moved by this reality. It stirs in him this inner outrage that reminds him that he is here on a mission, and it isn't just to resurrect one man. It's to eventually and finally and fully resurrect all men who believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that's his surprising emotion. Look at the story's culmination. Jesus once more deeply moved. Verse 38, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there four days. And Jesus said, didn't I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The glory of God. Jesus has talked about the glory of God throughout the Gospel of John. It's God's perfect plan. It's God's reflected brightness. It's God's It's God's will revealed in the signs and miracles of Jesus, all of it pointing at the ultimate glorification of God, which is not going to be the crowds of people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus is the king, we love you. It's going to be crucify him, crucify him, Jesus on the cross and then raised from the dead. That's going to be the glory of God, but they don't know it yet. And so they roll away the stone and Jesus looks up and he prays and he prays out loud and he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus. Come out. And some have said the reason he used Lazarus' name was if Jesus would have just said, come out, all the graves would have opened. Behold the power of the resurrection and the life. Lazarus, come out. 
the dead man responded immediately. He came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus' surprising emotion is his deep outrage over death. There's a final surprise in this story. A final surprise. And it's Jesus' surprising victory over death. Not the death of Lazarus, but the death of you and me if we trust in him. Look how this story concludes. It doesn't have Lazarus sitting on the couch and everybody saying, what was it like? Tell us about it. You should write a book, dude. It immediately flips to this, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. That's the right response. The cry for faith in these verses over and over again, the cry that you ought to believe was met that day and many were saved. And I pray that hearing the story of Lazarus one more time, maybe for the 90th time in your life, you too will respond in this manner, that you would put your faith in him. Why? Because of his surprising victory over death. Keep reading verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. This is 70 people who ruled over the religious life of Israel. And they're saying this. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's a man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place, a metaphorical way of speaking about the temple, and our nation. They're so concerned with their political place in the world and with their religious furniture that they inherited from their forefathers that they are disdaining and scorning and rejecting God's Messiah. And the irony of this whole thing is that 40 years from this day, both the nation would be removed and the temple would be destroyed. That which they were so concerned about, that Jesus was threatening their power structures, that he was a threat to the nation of Israel, that he was a threat to the temple sacrificial system, Rome would come and destroy both of them. The irony of that, that in trying to protect their religious stuff, they killed God's son and they rejected God's servant and they passed by salvation. I hope you don't do the same to preserve some kind of religious identity. Oh, I, don't wanna, I don't want people to know that I'm not really saved, that I've been living this double life. I can't get saved at camp this year. I, I'm still kind of living this secret thing. I, I can't do that now. What would my parents think? What would, what would they think? They think I'm a good Christian kid. I just, and I don't want to get rid of this sin. So if you're having that dilemma right now, wake up. Learn a lesson that you will know in not 40 years and maybe not 80 years, but I promise in 100 years, in 100 years, you will know what a fool you were. To reject the Christ, to reject the Messiah, the one who surprisingly beats death and shows victory over death by going to the cross. Look at these blind religious leaders. Verse 49, one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he replaced a man named Anna. You know nothing at all, he says. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Wow. Caiaphas was not a Christian, just so you know. He's asking for political expediency. He's asking to say, hey, I know a solution to this problem. Get rid of Jesus, and then we save the nation. Did you hear his words? Do you not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? Verse 51, John comments on this irony. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And John can't help himself. And so he explains it to you if you still don't get it. 
And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And just a few chapters later, that's exactly what they will do. They will grab Jesus and arrest him under the cover of darkness. He'll be betrayed by his closest associate. And he will be hammered onto that Roman cross. And he will hang in agony until he is dead. A spear will be thrust to his side to prove that he was dead. He will be buried in a rich man's tomb according to all the old prophecies being fulfilled. And God will turn his face on his son for that moment. It will be the darkest moment in all of human history as Jesus bears the wrath and curse of God for you and for me. And then Jesus will be raised from the dead by God, vindicating all his claims and proving that he was who he said he was. And that's his surprising victory over death. The Jewish leaders concerned that their nation would be lost. But what happened in God's wisdom? He spoke through the prophet Caiaphas. Caiaphas was saying something foolish, something sinful. God took his words and turned them for good. Oh, little did he know how much one man's death would not only save the nation, but save all nations and save all peoples. And Jesus would triumph and reign over death forever. Because of the death of Jesus, you can be saved. Because of the death of Jesus, you can live forever. Your heartbeat will stop. And your eyes will open in the presence of God. And you will live forever in eternal bliss or in eternal damnation. All dependent on what you do with this Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Pray with me, please. God, it is beyond our comprehension to think about the truth of the gospel. As we take this moment and prepare to sing songs about your love and songs about your sacrifice, speak to us, God. Convict us in the inner man. Bring to light. Bring to life. Help us see that the most important issue in the universe is the glory of God. Help us to see that you made us for yourself. Help us to see that we have sinned and against you, we have an accounting to give. Help us to see that your judgment is just and that you will judge us for all our sins. Not because you're hard, but because you're right. And help us to see the gospel, the good news that God in his love, God in your amazing love, your son took on flesh. That Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins on the cross as a substitute, and he was raised to life on the third day, showing your acceptance sacrifice for the nations and God call us now to repent of our sins to turn to him to trust in him and his righteousness his goodness his righteousness his favor would be our own God may many students tonight lay down their rebellion against you and embrace the gospel be our refuge and our strength. May we find great joy in your loyal love.